This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Hello and welcome to Savor, a production of iHeartRadio. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we have an episode for you about Fanny Farmer. Yes. Who is someone we've talked about a few times? We've mentioned a few times, I should say. Uh, certainly in talking about her cookbook, the Boston Cooking School Cookbook. Yes, that does come up a lot. Uh, and mm-hmm. it has been a while since we've done what we call a profile in deliciousness. Ah, yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. So you can see our previous entries in this uh, loosely connected mini series. Uh, we've talked about Julia Child and other James people <laughs> and Isabella <laughs> Beaton. Yes. <laughs> oh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, um, uh, Edna Lewis. Uh, we we talked about joy of cooking. Um, Irma Ron Bauer. Mm-hmm. Yes, we have talked about cookbooks and kind of the nature of cookbooks and and stuff through various episodes. So lots of stuff to explore. Uh, but this episode was really really interesting to me because um, I didn't know this. I didn't know this at all, and despite. Despite the fact that we talk about it often or we use it as a source often, I didn't know about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know about this human's background. So, so heck yeah. Yes, which I guess brings us to our question. I suppose it does. Fanny Farmer. What or who is it? <laughs> well, uh, Fanny Merritt Farmer was a recipe writer, lecturer, and all-around educator in cooking and nutrition around the turn of the 20th century. She placed an emphasis on the developing fields of dietary science and domestic science, with the idea that it's not, like, difficult to cook or to run a household for both health and happiness. It just takes comprehension and, like, a little bit of work, yeah? It's actually really close, I feel like, her her point of view, in essence, to one of my favorite descriptions of what we do um, here at this weird workplace of ours uh, from, from colleague Ben Bolin. The world is understandable and worth understanding. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, 
Yeah, and uh, Farmer pioneered the inclusion of standard measurements in recipes, um, where previously cookbooks might have called for like a pinch or a walnut-sized lump or a handful or a teacupful of something. Um, She wrote about teaspoons and tablespoons and actual measuring cups, not just like whatever you've got in your cupboard, and how to measure out different ingredients. She is sometimes called the mother of level measurements. So she she did a lot of work in making cooking and nutrition and the pleasure of food practical and accessible. Uh, she's like a okay. Think think of your favorite cookbook. Um, maybe one that's been in your family. Maybe certain pages are stained from when you had butter on your fingers and you needed to flip the page because you know that you can get the dish right if you just follow these blissfully clear instructions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she is the grandmother of that book. Oh. Yeah. I do appreciate that book. And I do love what we're going to talk about throughout this of kind of the, because I've expressed my frustration sometimes when you're trying to get a recipe and it's like a pinch of this or a dash of this. And you're like, what does that mean? <laughs> She's like the the person who came in and was like, let's yeah, hold on. Hold on. We can standardize this. We yeah. live we live in the incredible future. Let's make it happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The incredible future of the, you know, 1890s. Um, but right. Okay. So uh, the work that she is best known for is called the Boston Cooking School Cookbook. It was first published in 1896 and is still in print today, um, though some editions are called the Fanny Farmer Cookbook instead. And reading through it, it's it's really remarkable, um, like, A, what a departure it was from prior cookbooks, and B, how close it is to the way that we start every episode of Savor. Um, very like, okay, uh, just in case you just got to Earth and you don't know what a cheese is, let alone how to make one, let's explain it. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> yes. Um, like, okay. The opening of the book, like like chapter one, line one, is food is anything which nourishes the body. From 15 to 20 elements enter into the composition of the body, of which the following 13 are considered. Oxygen, 62.5%. Carbon, 21.5%. Hydrogen, 10%. Nitrogen, 3%. Calcium, phosphorus, potassium, sulfur, chlorine, sodium, magnesium, iron, and fluorine, the remaining 3%. Food is necessary for growth, repair, and energy. Therefore, the elements composing the body must be found in the food. The 13 elements named are formed into chemical compounds by the vegetable and animal kingdoms to support the highest order of being, man. All food must undergo chemical change after being taken into the body before it can be utilized by the body. This is the office of the digestive system. (laughs) The office of the digestive system? So, A, charming language here. Uh, B, um, what an interesting introduction to a cookbook. Yes, absolutely, (laughs) yes. (laughs) Very intense, I will say. A lot of percentages. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But right, like, I I mean, you know, and then it goes on to have, like, five different recipes for for ways of making egg salad. Uh, But, but, you know, like, like it, it does focus on the science here. And I, and I find it so fascinating. Um, I mean, like in that opening chapter, it goes on to explain how our bodies use, uh, what she, what she calls, uh, uh, proteids, carbohydrates, fats and oils, mineral matter, and water. Like it gives 
She, she gives the chemical formulas for different types of sugars. Some of what she's saying, I mean, this was written over a century ago. Uh, some of what she says is, is, is very on point for what we know today. Some of it is extremely not. Um, so, <laughs> so that's interesting. It's, it's interesting as well as like a window into where science was about biology and nutrition at the time. Um, uh, <laughs> Uh, all that being said, uh, according to her niece and other sources, she actually like wasn't a very good cook. Um, mm -hmm. She was more of like a food detective and a force of nature. Ooh, <laughs> food detective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. Well, what about the nutrition? <laughs> don't, don't eat people. Don't eat dead people. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess it's better than eating living people. I'm going to look, man, I'm going to leave this up to all y'all. Yeah. You make your own judgments. You back away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, moving on. We do have some numbers for you. Yes. Uh, there, okay. There were something like, uh, 1,850 recipes in her original Boston Cooking School cookbook. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, and that cookbook has sold over 7 million copies today and still remains in print. The original version of it went through 11 editions before uh, it got kind of morphed into something a little bit more modern. We'll talk about that later. It's also been translated into French, Spanish, Japanese, and Braille. And this book had a massive influence and revolutionized the cookbook space. Uh, Julia Child once said it was the, quote, primary reference in her mom's kitchen and that she learned a lot from cooking recipes that it contained uh, for things like fudge and pancakes. Uh, hmm. So it was one of those things where it had that ripple effect uh, when it came out. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Um, and we do uh, have a lot to talk about in our history section. We do, and we're going to get into that after a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, we'll boot it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh. Oh. 
Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. So, uh, Fanny Farmer was born in Boston on March 23rd, 1857, the first of four daughters in her family. She was raised not far from there in Medford, and her parents were struggling, but they were managing. Her father was a printer and editor. Yes, and a great niece of theirs. I don't know if it was the same niece, but a great niece (laughs) um, of theirs allegedly described them as Unitarian and bookish. Um, And... Yeah, Fanny Farmer certainly seemed to be on that path. Mm -hmm. In the early days, she intended to go to college to study to become a teacher, in part because it was one of the few positions permitted to women at the time. However, her plans changed when she experienced some lower body paralysis at the age of 16, uh, the culprit most likely polio. She was advised to stay home and rest, like don't even study. Uh, this was the medical advice someone in her position would probably receive at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Uh, eventually, Farmer did secure work as a sort of governess in her 20s for a well-off friend of the family. And that friend is often said to have encouraged Farmer to hone in on her culinary education. True or not, because the, the evidence is sort of, I don't know, hard to pin down. Uh-huh. Um Sure. Farmer enrolled in the Boston School of Cooking a few years later. At the time, she was 31 years old. This school's mission was to give an option to middle-class women so that they could learn the skills needed to work in a variety of paying spaces, like private homes or institutions. Um, And in the school's own words, to quote, lift this great social incubus of bad cooking (laughs) and its incident (laughs) evils incident evils from the households of the country at large. Wow. It's very intense. We don't write like that anymore. The great social incubus of bad cooking (laughs) and its incident evils. Wow. It's so good. (laughs) Heck. All right. Um, yeah, okay. So so this, the, the school had opened in 1879, um, having been proposed by a member of the local uh, Women's Educational Association after she had attended classes at a similar school in London. Um, they offered inexpensive and even free classes um, with periodic forays into everything from, like, cooking for fancy dinners um, to anatomy and digestion. And Farmer seemed to have liked it because after she graduated, she joined the school staff in 1899. Mm -hmm. And was successful. Uh, She was hired on as the assistant principal and took over within two years. Meanwhile, the school's first principal, one Mary Lincoln, had published a cookbook of her own back in 1883 um, as something of like a textbook for her students. Um, It was called Mrs. Lincoln's Boston Cookbook, What to Do and What Not to Do in Cooking. Um, it included a lot of like like basics of kitchen setup and prep and technique, uh, and there was an emphasis uh, on the science of what was happening during cooking in that book. In 1894, an article in the Boston Globe described the school thusly, um, the mission is not only to show the poor how to comfort their families with wholesome and economical food, but to begin a moral reform. 
believing that there is more potent preaching in the thought of the aroma of a cup of good coffee, juicy, nourishing meats, and light homemade bread that shall call the laborer home to share the delights of a neat, attractive table with his family than can reach him in any other manner. Hmm. <laughs> well, uh, also, if you remember... In our other episodes on women writing cookbooks and the history of cookbooks in general, uh, I guess we talked about Betty Crocker, also appropriate here. Mm-hmm. Um, here in the U.S., this was when cookbooks were starting to hammer out concepts like home economics and domestic science. And um, these cookbooks at the time were often not just about the recipes, but also about advice for usually women on running a household. Right, right. And like as that above quote from the Boston Globe sort of reveals, it was really attached to like, like, so there were a lot of uh, kind of socioeconomic and life changes happening um, due to industrialization around the U.S. and other places at the time. You know, like young people were moving to cities and were kind of disconnected from um, from traditional food ways and and hands-on learning methods. And also there was a little bit of this like moral panic of like, what are we going to do with this new type of, 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 of human, of human lifestyle? Like, like how are we going to make it not just <laughs> tolerable and, and, uh, you know, maybe hopefully nice. Um, but also I guess like through doing those things, like prevent the, the the country from descending into the you know, social incubus of um, <laughs> bad cooking, <Right>. etc. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, a part of that was the science um, <laughs> of these recipes. <laughs> Um, and Farmer really was a proponent of that, and she championed it. Uh, she believed that the move away from vague terms like a pinch of this to more standardized terms demystified cooking and made it more accessible for people. Um, and through her work and her stances, she garnered more and more respect for her opinions. Like people were seeking her out to get her opinion on things Yeah, in this arena. Um, and through that, she did get more and more media attention. And she did lecture circuits that were published. Uh, she was one of the first women to give a lecture at Harvard Medical School where she spoke about foods, diet, and the ill. That was a big thing that she liked to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, by all accounts, she was charismatic and engaging and soon had a following of women of the upper class, middle upper class, uh, and as such, expanded her offerings to include recipes for fancy dinners and luncheons. Yeah, those all all those sort of events that women yeah. were expected to cook for, provide for. Yeah, yeah. Maybe and like maybe if the lady of the house wasn't attending, then she would send her personal cook out to these kind of things to learn. Yes. The Boston Cooking School cookbook was published under her name in 1896, which yes, we've mentioned many times on the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, it contained over 1,000 tested, fully measured recipes. I actually saw a lot of numbers around that 1,000, a lot of them way higher. And I, I wonder if it has to do with the 
tested, fully measured part. Oh, hmm. Oh, but I'm not it, sure. It, a thousand plus. Yeah, a thousand, thousand plus. plus. Yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> some of some of them were lifted from Mary Lincoln's earlier book, but um, but many were Farmer's Own. She was apparently particularly fond of and good at uh, like working backward from a finished dish at a restaurant and figuring out a recipe for it. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I love that. Um, however, at the time, the publishers were afraid of losing money on this book. Uh-huh. So they pushed Fanny Farmer to pay for the 3000 book run herself. But she kept the copyright. Um, uh-huh. Smart. Uh, mm-hmm. Because again, it went on to sell millions of copies. Yeah, like eight thousand in the first year alone. I have read also varying numbers on how many copies it sold during her lifetime. Like, um, like a hundred thousand, three hundred and sixty thousand, three million. There's a large difference between those numbers. Um, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but at any rate, uh, <laughs> the book did include about 20 pages of advertisements at the end to help offset costs. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, okay. So I so I read from chapter one earlier, but um, but to give more of a vibe of what she intended the book to be, uh, this this was uh, from the book's like introduction prior to chapter one, okay? I certainly feel that the time is not far distant when a knowledge of principles of the diet will be an essential part of one's education. Then mankind will eat to live, will be able to do better mental and physical work, and disease will be less frequent. It is my wish that the book not only be looked upon as a compilation of tried and tested recipes, but that it may awaken an interest through its condensed scientific knowledge, which will lead to deeper thought and broader study of what to eat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's like a really long version of our of our podcast description. It, is. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, who knew? Who knew? Here we are. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> oh, thanks. Thanks, Farmer. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and uh, spurred on and funded by the success, all of the success, in mm-hmm. 1902, Farmer opened Miss Farmer's School of Cookery. And this was also successful. Uh, it allowed her to buy some land, build a house, and even support several members of her family and it ran until the 1940s. Yeah, uh, it closed in 44 during World War II and did not reopen afterwards. Mm-hmm. She did write a number of other cookbooks for home cooks. Um, uh, one of my favorite titles, Chafing Dish Possibilities from 1898. <laughs> um, what to Have for Dinner from 1905. Catering for Special Occasions with Menus and Recipes from 1911. And A New Book of Cookery from 1912. Um, if you're unfamiliar with what a chafing dish is, uh, it, it's what we think of today as a buffet pan, um, like a, like a big portable pan that can be set up over some kind of small independent heat source with like a cover to keep the contents warm. Yeah. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, chafing dish <laughs> possibilities. Love it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, one more, one more bit of text cause I kind of love her writing. Um, okay. So this is from the intro to catering for special occasions. Uh, she wrote, Americans of today are accused, somewhat unjustly it seems to me, of being inhospitable. Because we do not, in the manner of a generation or two ago, lay aside all of our duties at the visit of friends and welcome them ungrudgingly to our ordinary meal, we expose ourselves to this charge. But, in truth, it is a higher conception of hospitality that has brought about this change. 
In these days of rapid transit, by sea as well as by land, the markets of the world are brought almost to our very doors, and we have a hundred combinations to our grandmother's one. We, therefore, receive our guests more formally. We make preparations for their coming and take pleasure in giving them a meal which shall vary from the humdrum order of culinary production. That's such a good quote. <laughs> because it's, it feels like it's touching on, like the industrialization of things and the the idea that we are more able to get things or her but us from the future yeah (laughs) as well but also still wanting to make something that is personable specific um not just a rote dish yeah 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 wanting to do something nice for company um mm-hmm. and uh and having this kind of newfound capacity to do so in different ways uh yeah. i I love that that uh that line in these days of rapid transit by sea as well as by land um, Me too. yeah just because I'm like I'm like what what a time to be alive right like 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 what a what a amazing shining new century it must have seemed um Mm -hmm. and not I mean not that it wasn't I mean you know but like it it just I I love I I love little peeks into history like that that show that you know like every every generation thinks that they're like inventing everything anew and that everything is wild um I mean but it was during this time as well um yeah 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 and and she was she was all about it she was all about exploring (laughs) that and her influence did not stop at these cookbooks we've talked about at the school. Mm-hmm. Um, she also worked for the Women's Home Companion as the food editor and continued to really sing the praises of precise measurements. That was her whole, she mm-hmm. loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, but as many people wrote in their accounts of her, she also made it fun. Um, and for some, she helped shift food into something to take pleasure in. Yeah. Um, she did write one additional book, uh, which she's said to have considered her most important work. Uh, it was called uh, Food and Cookery for the Sick and Convalescent, uh, published in 1904. It, um, it really like intensified her prior themes of the importance of making food n- not just nutritious but palatable, especially for, for people who need that nutrition the most. Um, it really emphasized like, like good cheer, like serving things on nice dishes, uh, making you know, like if, if someone is sick, you know, and you want them to eat bread and butter, like like make a little bread and butter sandwich in a heart shape instead of just serving them a slice of bread and a pat of butter. Um, and it's easy to imagine, you know, her own history influenced her writing here um, of, 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 you know, having having grown up being told like, nope, you're just in bed. Like you're you're that's that's where you live now. So, you know, wanting right. to make that nice for other people who are experiencing that kind of situation. Um, it also does remind me some of what we talked about in our Laura Ingalls Wilder episode about making things um, pretty, you know, to help make the best of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she did have a number of strokes in her 50s, uh, but continued lecturing using a wheelchair to get around. Her last revision of the Boston Cooking School cookbook published in 1914 Although I think that she was like working on the next edition when she passed. Hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
and she died in January 1915 at the age of 57 due to complications stemming from stroke. Um, Her legacy by no means ended there, though. Her cookbook continued to undergo several revisions, perhaps most famously the one overseen by Marion Cunningham in 1979, often credited with modernizing farmer's work. I feel like we talked about this with Joy of Cooking as well. Um, Yeah. Yeah. um, As discussed in previous episodes, uh, these revisions, they reflect changing taste and concerns of the American people. Oh, yeah. And also technologies. Because, you know, like um, there was a fancy new chapter on how to use fancy new kitchen appliances like refrigerators um, and pressure cookers that showed up in the 1930s, along with uh, details about cocktail party entertaining and the use of wine in cooking. Uh, by the 60s, there were more uses of prepackaged foods like canned goods and recipes. Um, that was also the era when they changed the title to the Fanny Farmer Cookbook. Um, some recipes, though, have sustained throughout, even if they have changed over the years, um, like the one for Boston baked beans. Very popular, I Ooh. guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, uh, Fanny Farmer candy um, with a Y in the word Fanny um, started up in 1919 after Fanny Farmer, the person's death, um, kind of capitalizing on Farmer's name while escaping copyright dispute. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. I don't know. I don't know exactly how I feel about that. Um, the, the family trust wound up selling this candy company, the copyright to farmer's name in 1965. Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, that's a Northeastern, uh, like chocolate kind of based candy company. If, if, uh, if anyone is not familiar with it and you're not from the Northeast of the United States, that's why. There you go. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> in slightly nicer news, um, uh, Christopher Kimball of America's Test Kitchen got pretty into farmer's life and legacy in the like early 20 aughts. He published a book called Fanny's Last Supper in 2009. It was about her and about his experience of like recreating her 12-course Christmas dinner menu using contemporary Victorian cooking technologies and techniques and ingredients. Um, He also helped open a a modern iteration of Farmer's Cooking School called the New Boston Cooking School in 2015, which I don't think lasted very long. Um, but, But heck, what a nice idea. Yeah, and there's a lot written about this, a lot you can see about this, so definitely... I was cool. Check it out. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. And I really, oh, I really want to read that book because that sounds like exactly the kind of foolhardy adventure (laughs) that I would want to embark (laughs) upon. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Like he boiled the whole calf's head in order to get like the good stock going. Like, you know, like, oh, so exciting. Anyway, Mm -hmm. okay. Um, Also, uh, not a sponsor or anything, but um, there is a like like early grade illustrated book about Fanny Farmer that's set to publish in January of 2024. Um, it's to be called The Fabulous Fanny Farmer, Kitchen Scientist and America's Cook. <laughs> I love it. I want to know. <laughs> know about it. Listeners, I feel like last time we wrote about wrote about when we talked about Joy of Cooking, a lot of you wrote in with your own memories and your own additions that you had. Yeah, yeah. 
This same one, movies. yeah. Oh goodness, absolutely. If this is something that you grew up with, or that like you remember a grandparent maybe telling you about um, or using in their own kitchen, oh, we totally want to hear about it. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Um, but that is what we have to say for now. It is. Uh, we do have some listener mail already prepared for you, though, and we are going to get into that as soon as we get back from one more quick break for a word from our sponsors. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, was bought it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jin, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jin. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jin! Huh? Oh! Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. And we're back with a I was just telling Lauren the tragedy of <laughs> Darth Annie. No. <laughs> this book that was given to me that had Fanny in the title that I was told was about me, and now I believe it wasn't. But it involved a circus and a, a child that was very good at the circus. Um, I'm going to investigate this, okay? Yeah. Yeah, and no, I'll look, look, look into it. Absolutely. Oh, I'm, oh, I'm going to. I, I mean, will. were you very good at the circus as a child? No, but I did do a whole circus act when I was oh, in kindergarten where I okay. had a tiger outfit. Yeah. But I was also, I was like the whole circus. Yeah, you were. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows what I was thinking, but that no. was what happened. Awesome. One man circus. I love it. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I will say before we kick off this first listener mail, uh, minor spoiler alerts yes. for uh for this year's 13 days of halloween podcast yes i'm excited to talk about this yes uh, yeah yeah you, yeah i want to hear your process and my process yeah yeah let's do it okay okay all right so albert wrote spooky halloween annie and lauren completely off topic from saver but it's 13 days of halloween time <laughs> this season i wasn't sold on the first or even the second episode 
Also, thanks in part to D&D, I kind of figured out the <laughs> twist. Mm. Mm. Um, all the mistakes in her profile, especially the right versus left mistakes, led me to the conclusion that there was a, a doppelganger <sighs> in her world, <laughs> in her timeline, or from a different world or timeline. I wasn't sure, so I stuck with it, and the third episode was hitting the mark. I just finished episode six that Annie wrote. Loved it. And I was right. So I'm seeing a trend in Annie's writing. <laughs> Yet another creepy woman and her disturbing story. Season one, season three, and now season four. Sorry, I don't remember which episode you wrote in season two. <laughs> I know Lauren is editing the stories and also doing some voice acting, but I have so far failed to identify her in the episodes. So good job <laughs> if you have acted in episodes one through six, that is. The first two episodes appear to be written by a team instead of a singular writer. I would love to hear how the editing process worked. Anyway, I've got to prepare for my game tonight. I'm running a few sessions of Mothership, a sci-fi horror RPG for my gaming group. I hope your gaming is going well. Mm. Oh, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Heck yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, goodness. Thank you so much for listening to 13 Days. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, if you haven't listened to it and you're in any way interested in this kind of stuff, then I recommend it. Uh, it was really fun. I do find it interesting because this was written, I would presume, at episode six. Sure. Um, sure. You know, so like the right. Rest like of it hadn't played out yet mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so interesting yeah um yeah yeah so uh so i guess the, the so, so this is a anthology horror series that we we here at iheart podcasts do uh every halloween in the the 13 days leading up to halloween uh 13 episodes and we have a different person write like kind of like the primary voice storyline kind of bit uh for each episode and then we have like a wraparound of varying complexity um increasing <laughs> complexity every year and uh so <laughs> uh so yes um the like the like main team wrote the first couple episodes and then the last episode um and then the kind of interstitial wraparound bits for all of the others as well. And Annie wrote the main part for episode six, I guess. If you said it, I believe it. Totally. That's great. Yeah. That <laughs> I believe that's right. Yes. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we had a little bit of confusion in production about exactly like how many episodes there were going to be because we were going to publish them over the course of 13 days. But was it going to be two episodes? I don't know. It was a whole thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know what was uh what was what was your experience Annie? Uh well, first off, I will say Albert you're totally right. I did not write anything for season 2. Oh, okay. I was too shy. Um Oh. <laughs> I have to be asked directly and please don't tell the showrunners that, but otherwise I probably won't volunteer. Uh, <laughs> if you ask me directly, I will. Yeah. I have a million ideas. But I will say as someone who started from like season one to this season one was much more write a write a story. Uh, and now it's like write a story and you don't know where it's going to fit into this whole storyline. Both mm -hmm. are great. I'm not saying one is better than the other, but so it's kind of a guessing of 
what will work the best with what the overarching plot. Uh, and I knew the basic plot line. And I, I think I sent four ideas and one was this doppelganger idea. And I, I explained why doppelgangers freak me out because they freak me out. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And but I said in there, I was like, for all I know, this is literally the how it ends. <laughs> so like, tell me this is no good. And they're like, no, this one is the one right this. <laughs> and it was actually I'm really glad because um it was a challenge. It was a, it was hard <laughs> to write um, just because I was trying to keep in mind all the details and yeah, um, I don't know, like make a, a story. A lot of times I feel like when you're writing something, you feel like you're either being too overhanded or too underhanded. I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it was, it was a challenge and I really struggled with it. Um, but I feel like it paid off. And when I heard it, I was like, oh. Yes, this is amazing. Oh. The voice oh, actor is amazing. The sound effects is amazing. Huh. And you and the editing team sent back amazing notes. Like, it's a really cool collaborative process, but it is kind of like a mystery. It's like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> am I doing at all a good thing? <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot of moving pieces uh, on on these things, and so and you're also like like as the right because I did story editing on this season, and so like. So I was trying to kind of simultaneously wrangle what the showrunners were creating for the wraparound along with these these anthology pieces in the middle and make it all kind of make some kind of sense uh, and, and have some kind of flow uh, while we were all simultaneously creating it together. <laughs> and I was right. just like, oh, oh, okay. Oh, yeah. And just building the boat in the middle of the river. Here we are. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I I loved I I loved your story, Annie. It made me so happy. Um, I mean, first of all, it has a heavy food element, so of course, it, yeah. <laughs> I was like, heck yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I really uh, they they were doing um for the major roles they they did entirely uh, SAG AFTRA uh, uh, union members, um, particularly because we were we were recording during the strike. And so we wanted to give that opportunity to people who were out of work um, mm -hmm. and to, to make sure that they had a chance to earn some heckin' money, you know, heck yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so, so the voice work I wound up doing was like very small, very small little bits. Like I think I chant a couple of times in a couple of places <laughs> for different creepy gods that are coming up out of the underworld. Um, and there's a uh, one time, gosh, is it in episode one or two, two, two or three? I don't, I don't, again, I don't know what the numbers are anymore. It's <laughs> in like the lunchroom. Um, mm -hmm. And Shaky Pete, who is Ben Boland's new favorite character. Um, <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> is telling his story. Um, and uh, there's, there's a nice lady kind of in the background who's who's like oh thank you thank you so much for saving our village and like that's basically <laughs> what I did so that's that if you if you were like what's that goofy voice actor doing that was me and I didn't know I had no idea <laughs> <laughs> I love it <laughs> It is really fun to hear how it comes together. It um, is. It is. Oh goodness. And our sound designers do such a such an amazing job. Um Yeah. Yeah. They do. I 
at the beginning of the pandemic when we were all like, oh, what are we going to do? Um, I tried to make a playlist of uh, <laughs> of our voice acting, uh, our forays and voice acting <laughs> in a bunch uh-huh. of shows. And then I I did make it, but then I just never did anything with it. So maybe uh, I could, yeah. it exists. Um, <laughs> I just never did anything with it. Yeah, no, share sh- share that out. Let me send it to me at the very least. I'm curious. <laughs> oh, yeah. We've done a bunch of little voice a voice things. Oh goodness, it's um, true. It's true. Especially it's like it's around horrors. Oh yeah. Especially <laughs> we're all we're all a little bit spooky over here. So <laughs> mm, it is true. It is true. Uh, but I had a good time. It was fun working with you. Um and I guess we'll we'll see you next year. Yeah. <laughs> what happens? Yeah, goodness. Yeah, you, you, you too. Yeah, and thank, thank you again for listening. I hope that you enjoyed mm-hmm. the rest of the season. Um, uh, it's still, still up. If anyone wants to listen to it, thirteen days of Halloween, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, in the meanwhile, uh, Arik wrote. First off, yes, we absolutely love your little quirks, part of what makes the show fun. Uh, There is a reason I enjoy your show as well as others, where the hosts have fun little things that make the show more enjoyable. Uh, The ridiculous crime, history, and romance shows, tech stuff, large Nedron, uh, stuff they don't want you to know. And wine is such an interesting topic. I love hearing how he, uh, Jeff, uh, came into it. I enjoy wine and always used to worry about trying to pick stuff out when I finally came to the conclusion, why not just try something? And if it works, great. I don't try to think about pairings. I don't really go looking into tasting notes around bottles. The only thing I really look for is lighter or heavier, sweeter or drier. We have an awesome place here, uh, Engine House 25, built into an old firehouse. The wines are absolutely amazing. They're a little on the pricier side to some, but to me, getting a couple of bottles from here is a treat. If you tell them what you like and dislike and stuff, they'll get you set up. They also run a Clement Museum, um, and you can do a tour and tasting. Also, absolutely love Lauren breaking out yeast poop um, in that interview with Jeff. Uh, I was hoping we would hear it, and I was not disappointed. Keep on keeping on. Be yourselves. Enjoy the wine and champagne. I still need to remember to try pairing it with fried chicken. I'm really wondering uh, uh, how pairing it with chicken and waffles would be like. Oh, delicious. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as a person who is like kind of now from Atlanta, I'm morally obligated to like chicken and waffles. Um, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Any, any, anything with chicken and waffles, heck yeah, do it. I have to say, I, I bet a lot of people can relate to this. But when you get to like after Halloween, the rest of the year is just oh, I have to get through the holidays. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, which which involves some joy, but involves a lot of stress. Yeah. But New Year's, I've started to reclaim for myself. Yeah. And I'm like, leave me be. Uh, Mm -hmm. At least for Mm -hmm. one day. Like, I'm doing a New Year's thing. And I always have champagne. And after we did this interview with Jeff, I'm like, I French fries and champagne might have to happen on New Year's. (laughs) I think they should. I mean, I haven't had, I've had the fried chicken combination and it's amazing. (laughs) But French fries, yeah, Ooh, and a specific type of French fry, I can just, <laughs> I feel like that would be an amazing way to start the new year. I think it would be. I mm. I fully encourage you to do this. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. Champagne, the opportunities are endless. 
Um, they are. They are. Yeah. They and again, are. right. Just, yeah, just enjoy it. Just have a nice time. Come on. That's what that whole interview was about. And it was a great, he was great. Because I, I feel like a lot of times when you talk to, it can be this way when you talk to sommeliers and they're like, oh, they this with this. But he was like, no. No. Well, it makes you happy. You have a good time. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're about here. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. Oh, heck. Yeah. Yes. And and thank you for the, the recommendations, Arik. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I also completely second all of the ridiculous shows. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Crime, history, and romance all really aces human people. Uh, so, yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. As uh, opposed to tech stuff and stuff they don't want you to know. Um. <laughs> they're, they're dead to us. <laughs> no, they're not. They're no, not, they're no, not. no, 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 no. Oh, jeez. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> Thanks to both of these listeners for writing in. Um, if you would like to write in, you can. Our email is hello at saverpod.com. We are also on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SaverPod, and we do hope to hear from you. Saver is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thanks, as always, to our super producers, Dylan Fagan and Andrew Howard. Thanks to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender-inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit-tested for all-day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds.